Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter. We begin tonight an eight-part series in this second epistle of Peter. As I was preparing, I was noticing interesting differences between Peter's first and second letters. Here, Peter introduces himself first as a servant before claiming his title as an apostle. Peter's humble approach is fitting the context as he's writing from prison and likely awaiting his execution, which took place shortly after this letter was written from a jail cell in Rome. History has it that Peter died by way of crucifixion, the Roman torture treatment for their enemies. But Peter considered himself unworthy to die in the manner that Jesus was killed, so he requested to be hung upside down. The style between First and Second Peter are different, which has caused some commentating, commentating skeptics to question Peter's authorship, but he clearly writes as Simon Peter, and to go down a rabbit trail finding another author when early church history testifies to Peter's authorship, it'd be more complicated to search out another author. And besides, in that day, it was common practice to use a Eminesis, a secretary to write much of the letter which Peter likely depended upon. The book of Second Peter is very down to earth, as the veteran apostle writes late in life, and he writes to help us understand God, who in his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Please follow as I read the first 11 verses. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whatever, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I would ask this evening, that the words of my mouth and of the meditations of each of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Much has been written in recent decades describing how the Judaism and Christianity, the Judeo-Christian worldview, introduced to the world the idea of progress, giving rise to the advances of modernity, science, technology. When you think of the transportation technologies and communication technologies and medical technologies that have radically transformed how we live and improved standard of living. It's quite remarkable as we look back over the last few hundred years and even the last 2,000 years. But this very idea that we can improve our lives, that we can improve society and actually make a difference in the world is rooted, deeply rooted in biblical belief. And this biblical belief contrasts the rather cynical, cyclical, and restrictive worldviews that came from the Greeks and the Romans, the Chinese, and the other great ancient civilizations that, though they made great discoveries, failed to give rise to what we call science and progress. The Bible teaches a rational God. And a God who gives confidence to our reason, to our inquiry, that we can be masters of creation to do it as God instructed our first parents. The Bible introduces the idea of grace, which trumps the world's karma, lifting the human spirit, inflating it with a real lasting hope. Peter believes in progress. In contrast to the naysayers who insist that people cannot change, Peter says, yes, they can change by God's power and his grace. And it's this conviction of progress that gives each of us as believers confidence in our discipleship to make a diligent effort in our walk of faith. Tonight, we want to approach our passage and organize our thoughts around the fundamental doctrines of grace, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so we seek to understand our heavenly calling while still in these weak bodies of flesh. You see, justification, sanctification, and glorification are all expressions of God's grace, his unmerited favor that he has chosen to bestow upon his people. And it was made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grace changes our identity. By it, we are no longer objects of wrath, but adopted children of God. The Bible calls us ambassadors, priests, saints, disciples, even friends. And Peter, 
here writes that you and I have obtained a faith of equal standing with his by the righteousness that is ours by our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word obtained can also be translated received. That means it is a gift, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2. And this faith of equal standing indicates that Peter is not above us as an apostle. He is not better than other Christians. He was not riding in first class while the rest of us ride along in the back in coach. There is an equal level playing field at the foot of the cross for all believers. And, and this righteousness that Peter refers to reminds us that our standing with God is vicarious. It is through the perfect finished work of Christ, which we have obtained by faith, not on our own merit. And though that is what the Bible often means when it mentions righteousness, in this context, Paul or Peter is talking about the righteousness, the righteous actions of God, his, his fairness, his generosity in offering salvation to Jew and Gentile, in fact, to every tribe, nation, and tongue of people on earth. Now, contrary to the skeptics who suggest the Bible does not clearly teach that Jesus is God, need only look here at verse 1, where it is very obvious in the Greek that God and Savior apply to Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is mentioned at least five times in these 11 verses. He clearly is acknowledged by the Apostle Peter as being Savior and the Lord our God. Jesus is no mere hero, who saved the human race. He is God in the flesh. The second member of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son of God. And verse 2 goes on to distinguish between God and Jesus, who are one and the same, set distinct members of the Trinity, without confusion. Those who have made the trip to Niagara Falls have been blessed to see this seemingly inexhaustible source of water coming from the Great Lakes region. And it's a fitting image of what's communicated here of the source of our life is the eternal God. It is his divine power that grants all things that pertain to life and godliness. We, in our weakness, in our emptiness, depend upon God as the source of all of our strength and hope. It is in him that we have life. And, it's that, and it is in him that we have all that we need to grow in a manner pleasing in his sight. And, and here Peter references the two, the knowledge of him. And this knowledge of God is not just knowing things about him, but knowing him personally, having a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, who calls us to himself for his own glory by the excellence of his righteous character. And that's key here. As Peter would go into the character qualities that we are to appropriate by God's grace, 
It all flows from the righteous character of Jesus Christ. But how do we know that these blessings are ours? Well, it's rooted in God's promise. The promises of God that he first gave to our forefather in the faith, Abraham, to whom God blessed and promised to bring offspring and through him to bless all the nations of the earth. And it's by God's power and his promises that you and I become partakers of the divine nature. Now, the Bible is not teaching that we become God or even gods of any sort. Rather, we are remade and renewed in God's likeness. We take on his righteous and holy nature. Believers in Christ are no longer under the dominion, no longer ruled by the enslavement of sin. Rather, in our justification by God's grace, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world with all of its filth. It's in Christ we have been cleansed, washed by his own precious blood. And ours is the freedom the freedom from God who made us, who remakes us in the likeness of Christ and enable us to follow, to trust him and obey him to, as we abide with him and keep in step with his spirit. So justification is that declaration of God where we stand before God justified, just as if we had never sinned. It's the grace of identity, the grace of a new status. But sanctification is the process by which we are molded more and more into the likeness of Christ. Grace changes our character. In the late 1970s, author Jerry Bridges wrote a phenomenal book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And that book challenged many believers into actively seeking a holy life, pleasing to God. And in some ways, Bridges was responding to a movement in the prior decade of a kind of easy believism, where zealous evangelical evangelist efforts were trying to lower the bar, lower the expectations of what it meant to convert to Christianity with very little expected regarding leaving the life of sin. But as Bridges writes in his book, is so clear from the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that the believer is expected to put off sin, to live a life that is set apart from the corruptions of this common world. Thankfully, Bridges' book sold over one and a half million copies and edified many, but it has not been without its critics over the years. Those that accuse Bridges in the book of being legalistic and guilt-tripping and being light on the gospel and heavy upon works. And even in more recent decades, uh, some believers, even within our Reformed circles and our own denomination, have struggled with this idea of sanctification, have struggled even not quite sure how to exhort people to holy living without feeling like that we're being a bunch of legalistic Pharisees and lending towards a kind of performance Christianity. Now, I've known something of what I call performance Christianity, 
I look back upon my early years as a believer in high school and college, I did go through a season of real performance orientation. Nike Christianity, trying to do all these things for God with the mistaken notion that somehow I had to maintain favor or earn God's favor by living and witnessing and doing all the things that a believer is supposed to do. And I'm so grateful for God working in my life and bringing to me to, to what we call the Reformed faith, to better understand God's sovereignty, to better understand the doctrines of grace that became a real salve to my burdened soul after a long season of real burnout. You see, this idea of sanctification is not striving for God's acceptance. It's not trying to prove our worth before a demanding taskmaster. Rather, it's, it's the holy freedom and the joy of growing in the likeness of Jesus as by his power and by his grace we put sin to death and are set free from the tyrannies of the flesh, knowing that God is our Father and is always our Father through the Lordship and the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's this perspective that we need to have as we approach verses 5 through 8. As Peter goes on to commend to us, where he says, for this very reason, make every effort essentially to pursue holiness. You see, this, this very effort that we are called to is rooted in God's grace. Paul, what I believe is a parallel passage from Philippians 2.12, writes, for believers to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to bo- both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called to strive. We are called to be diligent. We are called to pursue holiness. But it's rooted in a power that is not ours. It's rooted and comes from the source of God's grace, not our own willpower. And this is not about works righteousness. It's appropriating the grace of God. And the very righteousness of Christ as it becomes more and more manifest and evident in our lives. Now the word supplement is used here as he adds various virtues and character qualities. And the idea behind supplement in the the classical world meant lavish provision. In fact, the verb for supplement would describe in the classical world a rich citizen who would finance a theatrical performance or equip a worship of the state that they were proud to to belong to. So supplement is improving upon and adding Two, equipping. If your diet is missing nutrients, you might take a supplement. If you are taking a class and need to get a certain degree and get into a certain school, you may have to supplement the class with extra materials. And so with this long list, we're called to first supplement our faith with virtue. See, our our virtue and our character is rooted in in our beliefs. Our, our worldview shapes our, our action and our behavior. And to our virtue, we are to add knowledge. Knowledge is important. 
We need doctrine. We need dogma and teaching. And we're reminded here, by way of virtue, that very few of us are born naturally virtuous. Virtue is something that must be nurtured and developed from our very young days. And in my observation, there are those rare people who seem to have a dangerous amount of natural virtue that sometimes can leave them less aware of their own sin and their need for God's grace. In fact, I believe one of the, the main signs of possessing saving faith is a deep knowledge of one's own sin and shortcomings and the awareness to humbly acknowledge one's desperate need for God's grace and mercy. Peter says to knowledge, add self-control. Proverbs 25 says, like a city whose walls are broken through, is a person who lacks self-control. My, how does that describe our society today? Proverbs 16.32 says, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Self-control, and add to that steadfastness, is described the mature believer, the one who is able to stand firm steadfastly on the solid bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ and his word. How the world and the church need steady, stable, steadfast believers in, the, in a life that is rocky and so uncertain. The steadfastness add godliness. We live in a world of pretenders, but true godliness, I believe, is hard to fake for long. False men and women have an agenda to seek power and prestige rather than the glory of God. But godliness, the biblical idea of godliness is by faithful, diligent practice, becoming more and more like God and improving our ability to flee temptation, to respond to difficulty and conflict with wisdom, to return evil with good, to demonstrate humility with boldness. And he says to godliness to add brotherly affection. Same with how in my house with six sons who don't always display brotherly affection. But as they get older and more mature, there is more tender affection. And we enjoy seeing our oldest come home for visits and demonstrate maturity and the way he interacts with his younger sister and his brothers. But affection is something that leads to the chief virtue of all, love. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another. Greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. Love summarizes the two greatest commandments. Love is the prevailing quality that characterized and defined Jesus' life, mission, and motivation. Peter reasons in verse 8 that if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it will keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. People who know me well know that I'm a very efficiency minded person. I love getting things done. And as important as efficiency is, 
effectiveness is even more important. When you work for your employer, your employer wants you to be effective, to not just get things done and get things done on time, but to get it done right. If you're on the road, you can be very efficient on a long car trip, making a few stops, but if you're going in the wrong direction, you won't arrive at your destination. Effectiveness means going to your target, trying to end up where you design to go. And Peter here writes for us to be effective, to be fruitful in the Christian life. In John 15, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The farmer is not satisfied with a mild and meager harvest. No, he wants his crops to abound, not only to feed many, but to gain a profit. And so God expects his workers to be fruitful. Soon our church staff under Chris Walker's leadership will meet to do an evaluation of our ministries, and we plan to discuss how, how to measure our ministries compared to the mission of our church and evaluate what is God honoring and effective and a good use of staff and volunteer time and energy. You can pray for us in that effort, but also use this occasion to take stock and inventory of your own spiritual progress. Where are you bearing fruit? And if not, why not? Where do you and I need to improve the soil of our hearts that it might yield a greater harvest? In the Lord's sight. In verse 9, Peter indicates that anyone who lacks these qualities is nearsighted to the point of blindness. Soon after we moved into this sanctuary some 15 years ago, I found that I had a hard time making out faces in the back of the sanctuary. I was having a hard time reading signs further and further away and came to discover that I was becoming nearsighted which is thankfully easily and relatively cheaply corrected with eyeglasses. But here, Peter is, is using nearsightedness as an illustration of the sin of self-centeredness. Believers, even believers, can become self-focused and unaware of the needs of others, glimly dismissing God's call to serve, to grow, and to be a witness for the gospel. We need our lenses, the lenses of our hearts refocused, that we may see God's glory and learn to follow in ways that please him. Those who have experienced COVID know that sometimes people lose their taste and smell and for a time really long for those senses to be restored. Well, spiritually, we need our senses restored and renewed from the disease of sin that make us stale, that, that weaken our senses. We need renewal to taste and see that the Lord is good. And then there's the danger of gospel amnesia. As Peter writes in verse 9, something that author Paul Tripp calls eternity amnesia. Verse 9 says that we forget that we've been cleansed from our former sins. It's because of this forgetfulness that we come every week and need to hear the gospel afresh. It's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over. It's why we need friends and fellowship to remind us 
of what the gospel is. It's why I've learned we never graduate from gospel 101 in this life because we keep forgetting that we have been cleansed and forgiven and washed and set free and God is working in us and transforming us for something glorious. Lastly, not only does grace give us a new identity, something we call justification, not only does it change us, what we call sanctification, but grace is also taking us somewhere. And that's what the Bible calls glorification. As we close out this passage in this verse, we are charged to be diligent to confirm our calling and our election. Now, Paul in Romans 8 says that all things work for good for those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. And where he explains that this calling is rooted in the foreknowledge and predestining grace of God. And when Peter refers to election, he's not talking about a vote or a lottery in heaven by which we are chosen, but the eternal loving initiative of God to pursue us into a saving relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when I embraced the Reformed faith late in college, I remember having many lengthy discussions with my Christian friends about election. We would discuss, well, how do you know if you're elect? We would talk about why, well, why pray and why evangelize if, if we don't know whether who the elect is and so forth and other interesting discussions by college students. But God does not, would not have us obsess over the status of our election or the status of anybody else. Rather, consistently throughout Scripture, God calls us to respond to him, to be faithful, to be diligent, to seek and find, to cry out, to ask, and all kinds of other exhortations. And here he simply says, confirm. We know what confirm means. If you're like me, after you make a bank transaction, you want to confirm to make sure it went through. When your parents or your children are going somewhere, you want to confirm that they make it back home safely after a long trip. We're called here to confirm our calling and election. And that's through observing that the demonstration of the ongoing practice of these qualities. Are you seeing these qualities in your life? Are, are these qualities bubbling and, and coming out and blooming in your life in various ways and forms? And once again, this is consistent with our belief that we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Genuine faith is always accompanied by works, by fruitfulness. As Jesus refers to in some of the parables, if you have a tree that's not producing fruit, you address the problem. It's got, it needs to be pruned, it needs new soil, it needs fertilizer, it needs something. And if it's still, this tree is not bearing fruit, perhaps you need to cut it down and replace it. And so the Bible uses that warning of fruitless 
people who call themselves Christians, but for those who are in Christ, those who are rooted and grounded in the gospel, who stand on the bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ, Peter reminds us that this promise will never fail. It will never fall. And this is not based upon our holy performance, but the unfailing power and love of God that sustains us, preserves us until the day we enter glory. And it's this glorious destination that wraps up the passage in verse 11, the reward of those who faithfully follow the Lord, who have appropriated his grace with a life well-lived and pleasing in the sight of God. It says, to those who persevere will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need this kingdom mindset to stay focused heavenward and not be distracted by the lies, deceptions, and temptations of this fallen world. But lest anyone still has has doubts, wondering if Peter is still just a legalistic moralist exhorting us to greater virtue, I show you once again that he refers to Jesus Christ five times in these 11 verses. This is a thoroughly Christ-centered passage. Our justification, our sanctification, our glorification is all rooted in the finished work of Christ. Sometimes we call this our union with Christ. That we are so united to him by faith that all the benefits that that Jesus has as the eternal Son of God are ours. The, 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 The perfect and precious gift that God has chosen to bestow upon all of his children who simply believe upon him through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is determined not to leave us in the muck in which many of us began in our Christian faith, but he has plans to clean us, to cleanse us, to purify us, and to prepare us to enter into his holy presence. And as we anticipate that great day, may we depend on his power. Hold fast to his promises. Rely upon the riches of his grace. And in that strength, may we diligently seek him to be faithful. That we may enter the gate that the Lord has opened wide into eternal glory. As we all look to him with the eyes of faith. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we're so grateful for our status, our calling, our election, all the blessings and the provisions that we have because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would assure and encourage each one here and give us confidence and motivation and courage to be all the more diligent in our walk of faith that you might meet each one in seasons of discouragement to remind each one of us of your gracious provision for us, of how you've worked in our lives in the past and how you promised to sustain us and prepare us for eternal glory. Oh Lord, we just pray that you would continue to renew us into the likeness of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray.
Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.